this morning's reading is Nehemiah chapter 2, starting at verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king... May I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, But there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, 
the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. This is God's word. Well, good morning, everyone. If we've not met, uh, my name is Matt Fuller. But let me pray and we'll look at it together. Our great God and Father, here are distant events to us of two and a half thousand years ago. And we wonder, uh, can we really get excited about the building plans of Nehemiah and the hostility of these strange characters. Father, thank you for your timeless word. Thank you that not only is it of value in the history of your people, but you're a God who speaks through it today. Please help us understand this, Roddy. Please help us speak to us about what it means for us in this year, in our setting, we pray in Jesus' name. Now, look, life is busy, but um, when we're thinking clearly, if you're a Christian and you're thinking clearly, you want the kingdom of God to grow. Now, I know life is busy, and in every week there's a thousand things to do, and some weeks you just think you're getting through, and other weeks crises come. Yeah, I know that. We live that way. But when we're thinking clearly as Christians, if you're a Christian here this morning, you want the kingdom of God to grow, of course. Uh, and the chapter this morning is um, a window into how, how does that happen? How do you expect the kingdom of Jesus to grow? And um, we'll have a different temperaments. Some of us will be activists on the one hand. And you think, well, the kingdom of God grows, of Jesus grows. When you do lots of stuff, you've got to do lots of stuff. If you don't do lots of stuff, uh, nothing will happen. And there's truth to that. Uh, and others are sort of leaned towards more, uh, a better term than this, uh, pietism. Well, God will do what he wants without you and without me. He'll do what he wants. And there's truth to both of those. But one of the joys of studying the book of Nehemiah is it's a wonderful 13-chapter worked example of this is how you should try and achieve things in this world. This is how the kingdom of God grows. You plan and strategize and you work really hard and you pray. <laughs> and you say, Lord, it's all up to you and you can do whatever you want. And both. You need both. And it's a wonderful, just a worked example of that. As I've been reading it, uh, I, I, I dug out my copy of a um, biography of William Carey, who some would know. He was the first great, he's viewed as the father of, of missions. He was the first man really in this country to go overseas and say, look, there are all these people overseas who don't know about Jesus and we need to tell them. So he went to India, that was his patch. And um, his sort of most famous sermon is, uh, has two points, uh, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Two good points. Expect great things from him. Attempt great things for him. And in many ways, that's the book of Nehemiah. You attempt great things for God, but you, you, you need him. You only do it looking to him. But you expect them because Nehemiah is acting in response to what God has promised. Now, why, why look at this today? Why is Nehemiah 2 not a bad passage to think about uh, when we're thinking about our own year ahead as a church? Well, two very good reasons. One, we look at the book of Nehemiah and we did chapter 1 and now it's chapter 2. That seemed to be a very good reason uh, why we should do it. But secondly, I think it helps us with a few of the presenting issues uh, as a, a church and 
if you're a guest here today, this may or may not be of interest to you, but here are some of our presenting issues as a church. More of this in a moment. I don't, I don't want to say this too hard, but I, for this room and this congregation, I would just, I guess at the start of this year, have a, I wonder, I wonder about our commitment to prayer and asking the Lord for his help. Um, I don't know about everyone's uh, prayer life, of course. I, I don't know about your private devotions. But the percentage of this room that commits to a central prayer meeting uh, at the beginning of the month is very small. And the evening congregation spares the blushes of the church. But it's very small from this room. And I wonder if we want to see God at work. I imagine that would have to change. A second thing is a very practical one, and Nehemiah helps lots with this. We need more how-to smarts. I mean, is that, is that, can I use that? I think that feels like a, not a very English sentence. Maybe I've imported that from across the channel, but, uh, channel uh, Atlantic. But, um, uh, and in particular, as a church, we are creaking operationally, not because we're aging, although that is true, um, but we just need more firepower. We need more manpower, woman power. Um, everything's got a bit more complicated. Financial reporting, health and safety, safeguarding, managing trusts. It's all a lot more complicated and we just need more help. So some will know we're desperately seeking a new head of operations. And please, we'd love to see that in post by Christmas and please pray for that. That'd be a second thing. Uh, prayer and operations. Uh, a third thing for this year is uh, we've declared that we'd love to see a new church, a church plant. So a gang, overwhelmingly would be from the evening, um, going to northwest London, Wembley sort of-ish uh, way, in a year's time, next autumn. Um, and we're in negotiations with uh, the Church of England about a, a sensible location and building, etc. And they're, they're actually very positive. Um, but it's quite a big work planting a church, okay? Uh, and so the, the hope is that Scott and Sharon Fury will lead a group off uh, in about a year's time to do that. Well, that won't happen unless we plan and unless we pray. It just won't happen. So a little bit about pr- uh, one, two, three, four, five figures. One will be praying. Uh, secondly, about operations. Thirdly, this plant. Uh, and then the last is just an obvious comment. Uh, in a context, we're doing all these things where people are a little bit nervous um, I mean, the, the, the Queen has knocked cost of living crisis off the, uh, off the news uh, for at least 10 days. But no doubt, uh, in about a week's time, we'll be back to cost of living crisis. And um, uh, the role of the media will be to terrify us all um, about the forthcoming winter. Well, people feel that. Of course they do. I think those are four things that affect us in the year ahead. So, Lord, how do we make decisions? How do we pursue the growth of your kingdom as a church in that setting? And Nehemiah chapter 2 might suggest a couple of things. The first, you'll just have to forgive me, is a prayer, planning, and pecker. Uh, and the second is we need the gracious hand of our God. Okay. Those two. So first, we're going to look at these two. Verses 1 to 8, prayer, planning, and pecker. Listen, I never do alliteration. You've just got to let me have one every 10 years, all right? Pecker, courage. 
very Churchillian. We must maintain our pecker, our courage, okay? Just cross out and call, put it courage if you don't like it, but let me have one every 10 years. Okay. If you were here a couple of weeks ago then, we're in Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is, um, he's not in Jerusalem. He's serving the king. Where it's 450 BC, around about there, and uh, he's serving the king uh, of the empire that dominates the globe. So the Persian Empire dominates the globe at the time. Nehemiah is the cupbearer, important job, uh, to the king, Artaxerxes, in Susa. It's modern-day Iran. That's the uh, winter capital. Where do you want to go in the winter? Iran will give you some winter sun. Um, so that's where the monarch has moved to. Important job, cupbearer. Uh, you get your in the king's ear. You get to speak to the king, see the king all the time. But of course, you taste all his food. You drink all his wine before he does. So if someone wants to kill the king, good luck. Um, it's an important role. He's anxious about Jerusalem. God's people had returned to Jerusalem after the city had been destroyed. They'd, just, they'd returned in a, well, it's three ways, but they trickled back about 90 years earlier. But the city is still rubble. The temple's been rebuilt, but tiny. But the rest of the city is rubble. Nehemiah had only heard about this really in chapter 1. So chapter 1 verse 3, he'd heard from what was going on in Jerusalem. And he's just discovered that it's great trouble and disgrace. Chapter 1 verse 3, that is the state of Jerusalem. And so if we were here a couple of weeks ago, he prayed. Nehemiah hears that Jerusalem is in a complete mess. What are we going to do? He prayed. That's chapter 1. He prayed for four months. Well, we pick it up. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, four months after chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. Now, What's going on here? Why is Nehemiah so afraid? Well, the king has noticed his face is sad. Um, that is, in the culture of the time, uh, offensive. It's not just you've got your etiquette wrong, you've taken the wrong spoon and used the spoon in the wrong order. That is, if, if you're serving the king and you're miserable in his presence, that's disloyalty. How could you not be delighted? in the presence of the great king. So if you're miserable, you're either disloyal or you're plotting against him or, or something's very much wrong. I mean, to be glum in the face of the king, that is worse than giving King Charles III a dodgy fountain pen, right? That is, that is sort of court-martialable, you know, you're fearing for your life. You're taking your life in your hands. And look, we're told this is the only time. He'd never been sad in the presence of the king before. So Nehemiah has decided, today, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to be obviously glum. The king will notice because you don't be glum in his presence. And we'll see what happens. So he's afraid because he's taking this risk. And also he's going to ask the king, can I rebuild Jerusalem, please? Well, a few years earlier, King Artaxerxes had ordered Jerusalem not be rebuilt. Rebellious city. We don't want that rebuilt. So it's an edict of this same king, don't build the city, of Jerusalem. Make sure it's kept in rubble so they don't rebel against me. And Nehemiah is going to ask him to rebuild it. So can I be really miserable in your presence, which is offensive to a king such as you, and ask you to change your mind? That's why he's nervous here. 
So we get these questions, three questions from the king. Uh, First, why does your face look so sad? Verse 2, well, he's very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever, verse 3, why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Well, presumably that's quite a shrewd response. He doesn't say, why why are you sad, Nehemiah? Well, because Jerusalem's a mess and I want to rebuild it. Jerusalem, isn't that that rebellion? He doesn't even mention the city. The city of my ancestors. Oh, my fathers are buried there. Hey, if where you, you know, if your if if your old hometown where your fathers were buried was was in a mess, you'd be upset, wouldn't you? Oh, great king! So he's just appealing to him on a human level, a, a sort of sympathy level, quite shrewd, probably. Question two, verse four: The king said to me, "What is it you want?" Well, Nehemiah knows precisely what he wants, but he prays, quick prayer, arrow prayer, if you call it that. I prayed to the king of heaven. And then I answered, oh, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Still not mentioned, the name. Then verse 6, the king, third question, when the queen sitting beside him asked me, well, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? We're on. (laughs) Okay, he's asking how long is it going to take? I'm in. Uh, Thinks Nehemiah. Right, now time to chance my luck uh, a little bit, to be a little bit um, pushy here. Well, actually, I'm not entirely, he doesn't tell us the the details of the time, but um, verse 7, I'll tell you what, if you're going to let me go, can I have uh, letters to all the governors in the region so that uh, I get safe conduct, so I'm safe? Can I have that, please? Great. And um, verse 8, can I I go to the royal park and get the best of the wood to, uh, to rebuild the gates of the city? Can I have those couple of things? Yeah, and we're told, yeah, both of those things are going to make a material difference. We'll see in, in chapter 3. He turns up with an armed guard. Oh, that creates, it, um, that's very useful to him. Now, what are we meant to make of this? Well, three little things, if I may. Um, the first, well, they're there really, prayer. Now, Nehemiah had prayed for four months before this request consistently, Maybe you and I aren't so good at praying for four months consistently. And he'd pray this quick little arrow prayer, help. Maybe you and I are better at those sort of prayers uh, in the moment. And look, I'm conscious at this point is what every church minister or pastor is meant to say. But um, I think if we want to see the kingdom of God grow, an, an obvious growth in a commitment to pray, it must start there. I'd have thought. When I look back upon, um, which I hate doing because who wants to do it, but if I do look back upon the COVID years, um, most of it I've just erased and f- tried to forget. But the positives, I look back on the three, the three pleasures of, um, of uh, COVID. One, people became Christians wonderfully, just watching online and well, amazing thing to happen. Uh, secondly, I look back on the generosity of the church family when a number lost all their employment Within a couple of months, extraordinary fifty thousand pound given to the deacons' fund for those who couldn't pay their mortgages otherwise because work had just gone. I thought the generosity shown instantly was amazing, um, wonderful. But third, I look back with with um, with fondness the first prayer meeting. So Boris says, "Stay at home," and then a couple of weeks later, the first pray, prayer meeting, the beginning of April. It was all very new Zoom. Hello, hello, hello. 
you're on mute. Where's mute? You know, all the sort of, it was the, the utter incompetence where it, I mean, some of us never quite grew up on that. But um, it was, to, you know, and is this going to work? How does this even work? And I think 250 people turned up to pray. Wow. Because we thought we're in trouble, we need to pray. It was wildly, wildly encouraging at that point. I mean, not, of course, the whole church family still, but it's a high watermark in terms of people turning up. Now, of course, it's a different season. Everyone was at home. There was no travel. Um, we were all bored. It's like quite exciting at the beginning of COVID. I could see someone on the screen. I know all of those things played into it. But there's also something obvious about our felt need at that point. Lord, help. We need help. And I wonder if we might regain some of that, even in the moments where we don't think we need the same amount of help. Now, I'm conscious, just on the one thing, on that's like a monthly prayer meeting, not everyone can make it physically, of course, uh, but we've kept the Zoom option open. You can still come online. And I know it's a Wednesday night and people are tired, but listen, how about this? It's Wednesday and you're exhausted and you've wrestled half the children into bed um, and the other half are still beating you. Um, but you stumble through and you turn on the Zoom late and you sit there and you collapse into a chair holding a bottle of wine, a bottle of gin, whatever you need. And you say, I'm sorry I'm late. i got nothing. I'm just going to say amen at the end of every prayer. How about that? I reckon everyone can manage that. I mean, feel free not to have the bottle of wine or gin. Um, but I reckon we could all manage that even if we turn up late, because we do need to pray. <laughs> um, we have to do that. He prayed. Then I prayed. If you make it with person, of course, even better, wonderful. Uh, secondly, he planned. He planned. Now, Nehemiah thought exactly about what he was going to ask and what was required. There is shrewd planning here. Uh, one thing you get in the book of Nehemiah is, He's got lots of how-to, smarts. He's a planner. He's not the preacher. Uh, Ezra's the preacher. He turns up halfway through the book. Uh, he's had his own book, Ezra. Um, but he turns up in chapter 8 to preach again. Nehemiah is he's the businessman. Nehemiah's the CEO. And you need both <laughs> for the health of the kingdom of God. You need both someone to bring the word of God, but also a lot of practical help to see it implemented. Um, you start to see it. You'll get much more of this next time, but you start to see it even in chapter 11. He arrives in Jerusalem, stays there for a few days, makes sure he's understood exactly what's happening on the ground, goes out at night, makes sure he's, okay, what's exactly required? Before I stand up and declare what we're going to do, I'm going to really make sure I understand and get the lie of the land. And he's gone out at night. Anyway, we see this next week. He knows there's a sort of some who really don't want him to succeed. He's a shrewd planner. Now, as I say, we need a church. We need a new head of operations. Please pray that we get that by Christmas. But even that, it's no panacea. The body of Christ needs operational gifts, needs how-to gifts, needs management gifts. And um, some here contribute exceptional amounts of their time. It would just be really good to spread the load. <laughs> and we need to do that as a church family. 
skills of process and planning. We need more. Uh, he prayed. He planned. He had Pekka. You ready for this one? Pekka. Courage. That's all it means. It's just another word for courage. We just don't use it very much. Strength of mind to carry on in spite of risk. That's the dictionary definition of Pekka. Strength of mind to carry on in spite of risk. Chapter 2, verse 2, Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. He was putting his life at risk by being gloomy in front of the king and asking him to overturn a decision he'd made. Now, maybe this is a year where we need to maintain our pecker, courage. We may be fearful this year. It may feel more risky than ever financially in terms of what we give. It may feel a little risky to what you're trying to plant a church when you're completely shorthanded on operational skills in church. Yeah, yeah, maybe it is a bit silly, but sometimes you just got to try some things for the Lord and see what happens. God is with us. I was struck, um, uh, Phil recommended a book um, uh, to read, and the, the author is about sort of more subtle sins. Um, uh, it, um, what's it called? Listening vices. And um, uh, anyway, the author says in the introduction, look, my besetting sin is that I am pusillanimous. And yeah, I reckon most of you are like me. I think I know what that means, but let me just check um, uh, what that means. And again, so this is the second time I reached for my dictionary. Pusillanimous, um, timidity, lacking in courage. That's a, I mean, who has that as their besetting sin? I mean, you at least have a besetting sin that you can spell. Um, pusillanimous. You say, I lack courage. I'm timid. I'm always too nervous to try anything new for God. I'm too nervous to speak about him. I'm just faithless. Well, it's interesting to have a, that as your besetting sin, a lack of faith. I just do nothing to grow the kingdom of God. I just want my life to be straightforward and Courage is the opposite of that. Pecker. Courage is grounded in who our God is. God is with you. God is with us. So there is the first thing, I think, if we want the kingdom of God to grow, we need prayer, we need to plan, and we need courage. Pecker. Take your pick of those two. But then alongside that, secondly, we need the greatest hand of our God. Nothing happens without him. So Nehemiah has this encounter with the king and uh, makes all these requests. And uh, the summary of it comes right at the end of verse 8. Because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. That's what made all the difference. I've been praying for months. In the end, it worked because the gracious hand of my God was upon me. And when he turns up in Jerusalem, and eventually, after doing a bit of recce work and a bit of planning, uh, gathers the, uh, the key uh, officials in Jerusalem, he tells them, verse 18 of chapter 2, I also tell them about the gracious hand of my God on me, and what the king had said. Oh, the only reason anything's gone well so far, says Nehemiah, is God has done it. God has been at work. Because in the end, nothing happens unless the gracious hand of God is upon us. Now, in chapter 2, the, the, the note gets introduced of opposition, and opposition ebbs and flows throughout the next few chapters. Uh, we'll see there is the, uh, the hostility that there is. We had it in verse 10 of chapter 2. We'll 
more about these characters next time, but Sambalat, the Horonites, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, uh, heard that Nehemiah is going to try and rebuild the, the, the city. They're very much concerned. Uh, and verse 19, the same characters with another, Geshem, the Arab, heard all about this. They mocked us. They ridiculed us. Are you rebelling against the king Artaxerxes because he said you mustn't rebuild Jerusalem? But Nehemiah says to them, verse 20, he doesn't actually tell them, look what's happened. Look, actually, I've got, look, here's my letter from the king. You know, um, he's more polite than that. He says, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem. You have no claim or historic right to it. God is with us. And eventually, triumph is certain. Anyone says, everyone needs to know that. If you're a Christian here, you need to know. God is building his kingdom. Its triumph is certain, even though there may be much mockery and ridicule along the way. And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I don't want to be too blunt about it, but you may achieve greatness. You may be the prime minister, the president, whatever status quite Tobiah and uh, Sambalat and uh, Geshem had. You may rule and you may have palaces. You may be wildly successful. But in the end, the kingdom of God will triumph. Whatever you have, if you're in opposition to him, will go. Nehemiah is confident of that. So for you and me, or for our church family, we need the good hand of our God, his gracious hand upon us. Now, we've had a gap of a week, but I wonder, uh, let me try and draw together chapters one and two. Do you see how the writer has constructed chapters one and two? Not a lot happens so far. Nehemiah's only just arrived in Jerusalem, but why is it, chapter 2, that the gracious hand of God is upon Nehemiah to rebuild? Well, everything about chapter 1 screams because he's prayed for it, because he said, God, you promised that you'd bring your people back from exile, back to Jerusalem and rebuild it. You promised, Deuteronomy 30, perhaps the clearest place, you promised this. Why is God gracious to Nehemiah? Because Nehemiah has prayed and said, you, you promised you're going to do this. Do it now. And so when you read these two chapters, please don't miss the link between prayer and the promises of God being fulfilled. Prayer kickstarts the activity of God to do what he was always going to do. And we struggle to get our head around that. But that is the consistent biblical truth and pattern. God acts graciously to do what he always promised he would do because his people pray. It always starts there. Now, look, for you and me, we're not Nehemiah trusting the promises of Deuteronomy 30 that Jerusalem will be rebuilt, obviously. And there is no text of Scripture that says the church in the UK will grow in the 2020s, uh, and let alone all the plans of Christchurch Mayfair will come to fruition. There is no text of the Scriptures that says that. No, but I think we can, with confidence in the God of the Bible, expect great things from him in Carey's words and attempt great things for him. Forgive me, it's been a while since I've used him. Carey is, I think, a real hero for me because he describes himself, I just kept going. 
How did you achieve so much in life, William Carey? I just kept plodding. That is his phrase. I'm a plodder. He moved to India in 1793. He didn't see a single person become a Christian until 1800. I don't know, I might have been tempted to give up after seven years, not a single person. That's despite the fact that he was preaching three or four times a day. He was regularly stoned, not just mocked, attacked. Had to wait seven years, but he had a different perspective. He had a family born out there. His son moved to another part of uh, India to start a church. He wrote in a letter to him, be encouraged, my dear son, or we might even have it, might even have it. Uh, We've lost the picture, but he's not not particularly handsome, so that's no great loss. (laughs) Be encouraged, my dear son. Devote yourself wholly to your work, for this is the cause God has had in mind from eternity and for which Christ shed his blood and for which the Spirit and the Word were given. So its triumph is certain. Planting churches in India may take a long time, but God's at work. This is why Jesus came to save people from their sin, to be with him joyfully in heaven forever. It'll, you'll see it happen. The timescales may be different to what you and I imagine, my son. But, but this is why Christ came, right? To build a church. It'll happen. Give yourself to this. There is no greater cause. Carey spent his whole life in India. By the time of his life, he translated the New Testament into 35 different languages. He was the first to translate it into Mandarin. Not obviously the language you needed for India. He just thought it might be useful for someone later on. Um, It's quite a busy life. And again, he was asked, how do you do it? He said, oh, I just kept plodding. And none know what they might do until they try. What do, you, what do we need to do to grow God's kingdom this year? Well, let's not be pure activists or pietists. You've got to be activists. You've got to try stuff. You've got to do stuff. You've got to plan. You've got to keep your pecker up. Uh, you've got to try. And you've got to pray. You've got to do both. We need the gracious hand of our God, so we ask. More than Nehemiah, Christians have the confidence that we constantly live under the gracious hand of our God because we trust in the work of Jesus. We know he's for us. He's always working working for our good. Specific tasks, a plant in Wembley, more space for children's work. Well, we'll see, but you've got to attempt it and ask for it. You know, we need to plan, we need to maintain our pecker, attempt great things. This is the cause God has had in mind from eternity and for which Christ shed his blood and for which the Spirit and the Word were given. So its triumph is certain. If we could put it in these terms, Jesus is not a small king ruling over, in a ceremonial sense, a small country that looks back upon its greater days in the past. Jesus is no small king. He is the ruler of the world, and he shed his blood so that people could be forgiven and join his church, and its triumph is 
certain. So he doesn't want us to be pusillanimous, scared. He wants us to take courage, to trust in him, to display some pecker, even as we ask him to do great things amongst us. So let's begin. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, the growth of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is certain. He will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. He will see his kingdom grow across this planet and across the centuries. Father, for us, help us to learn what we can from Nehemiah, to be again struck perhaps by his courage in the face of reasons to fear, his deep prayerfulness. Would we consider how we can be involved in planning for the growth of his kingdom? Father, help us all to play our part, even this year, even in our church, to see his kingdom grow. Father, please, would your gracious hand be upon the specific things that we need, because we want to see, we long to see his kingdom grow. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.